Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. What do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about a precarious power transition in Sudan, social and political turbulence in France, worsening relations between China and Australia, and the new orthodoxy of war that's likely to come out of the fighting in Syria. All that and more, coming up. All right, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, you people, <laughs> let's get into the rapid fire news. So we have Armenia's prime minister is given an ultimatum, ultimatum, ultimatum to resign by protesters and opposition parties who joined the protests. Uh, he apparently has until noon on December 8th, which at the time of this recording is tomorrow on Tuesday. Uh, he has until December 8th to resign. Uh, I don't think he's going to resign. He does have the, the backing of Putin. Putin has made it very clear that he likes the pr current prime minister and has gone out of his way to defend him for basically agreeing to the peace the ceasefire that was brokered by the Russians, which gave Russia control over all of the Caucasus, but we're, we're not going to talk about that. Uh, there is a virus outbreak in Alaska's largest prison that has left half of the prisoners infected. Now, that's about 581 people. I mean, is, there's not too many people living there or in that prison in general, but it was something I noticed. The UN security team was shot at and turned around in Ethiopia's Tigray region. Now, last uh, time, last episode... We brought up the civil war going on in Ethiopia, where the government is fighting rebels in the Tigray region, and I brought up the dam, I brought up the Renaissance dam that Ethiopia was building, that was a point of contention between them and Egypt, and I seen a map, and apparently that river where they built the dam on is where the province of Tigray, that's like, uh, how do I put it? That's where the internal border between the other provinces of Ethiopia and the Tigray region begins. So there is the likelihood that something bad could go wrong with that dam. I figured it could, but I didn't know where exactly the river was, and now I do. So be on the lookout for foreign actors who could step in and potentially sabotage that dam, namely Egypt or any somebody sponsored by Egypt. We'll see where that goes. Uh, but the violence is continuing, and the UN is not able to do anything about it. Meanwhile, in Germany, a constitutional court has ruled in favor of the ban on anti-lockdown protests. Um, there was a video the other day where you had these crowds of people in Germany who were basically being sprayed down with water because it's cold outside, and they were protesting the lockdowns, and... On this podcast, we haven't so much gotten into the politics of the lockdowns, except for like that one episode I did regarding it. We've more so here focused on the geopolitics. 
the geopolitical aspect of the lockdowns, and I guess that's kind of appropriate here, and how they're weakening countries when compared to countries that choose not to go with lockdowns. And we, I really went in on that with my last episode, The Relative Power of Nations, and how the economic ramifications of these lockdowns are putting countries who were previously ahead in very disadvantageous positions. Because um, just look at um, France and Turkey. A couple months ago, France was able to step in and deal with Turkey when Turkey was getting aggressive and assertive in the Eastern Mediterranean. But will France be able to do that again now when they're entering lockdown too? Uh, I don't know, especially with the economic damage, they might be too focused at home to do anything. So the relative power between France and Turkey has changed. Russia's not doing uh, new lockdowns either, and they are making massive power plays. Uh, while there would be opponents in all of this matters, uh, are distracted. The relative power has shifted. Now, speaking of... Uh, Russia, the Ukraine has threatened Russia with sanctions over the Donbass conflict, which is the rebellion sponsored by the Russians in eastern Ukraine, which is hard up against the Russian border. Uh, Ukraine has threatened Russia with sanctions in the wake of the failed Normandy 4 summit. We've talked about that before, where it was a number of nations, Germany, France, Britain and I believe the Netherlands. I'm not entirely sure about the fourth member. I know it wasn't America. Or maybe it was. But the the summit failed, and now the conflict is left to be decided by the people involved. Russia, the rebels, and the Ukraine. I wonder who's going to win that fight. Especially now that the Russians have the Caucasus on lockdown, and Ukraine is another particularly sensitive piece of Russia's periphery. We'll see how that goes. I anticipate that they're either going to make a move on Central Asia or the Ukraine. And the way things are falling down, the way the dominoes are falling, it's looking like Russia may go after the Ukraine right now. But in the meantime, the Afghan-Taliban peace talks uh, are succeeding, on the other hand. They have entered the second stage where they have called for permanent ceasefire. So that's really good for the Afghan people. I'm sure they're as tired of war as America is, especially considering the war is in their country. So it's nice to see we have peace in Afghanistan. Now, we speaking of deals being made, the Brexit deal talks have ended, again, with just under a month left until Britain is independent again. I wonder if they'll celebrate their Independence Day. Uh, there's a three-year Saudi blockade of Qatar that is possibly coming to an end. There was like a major disagreement with the ruling parties, the ruling monarchies uh, in the two countries. And apparently they're brokering some sort of deal as well to not blockade Qatar. Uh, so there's that. Some more deals around the world. And while we're still in the Middle East, Turkey... Uh, their first export train uh, begins to make its journey to China via the Trans-Caspian East-West Middle Corridor. That's a mouthful, but it's 
just think China Belt and Road Initiative. That's the best way. That's the easiest way to sum it up. The Belt and Road Initiative, uh, where China is building infrastructure. Well, they're working with countries in Central Asia to build infrastructure uh, from them to China. And they have uh, trying, uh, they're trying to reach the Middle East, obviously for the oil. Iran has not signed on to the Belt and Road yet, but if they do, they'll have China as basically a massive, almost guaranteed end market for their oil, and they'll get massive Chinese funding to ramp up production, but they probably don't want to lose sovereignty. But Turkey has embraced it, and because Russia is one of the first countries to be a part of the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, namely because they already have the Trans-Siberian Railway, so there's little that needed to actually be done for that, uh, Turkey's able to benefit from the Belt and Road. So, China expanding influence across the Eurasian area. And while speaking of China, several Chinese fishing boats have reportedly been spotted off the Chilean coast. Now, Chile is in South America, for those of you who don't know. Uh, But that's really far from China, so that's uh, interesting to note. But now we'll get into the meat. Alright, so we're going to start with Sudan. Uh, In Sudan, the Sovereign Council established after the deposition of Omar al-Bashir, which was their dictator. Uh, He was deposed about a year ago, and this Sovereign Council was established uh, to try to create a civilian-led government uh, as they moved away from the dictatorship. Now, the goal of free and fair elections is currently 2022, uh, but there is tensions right now because by the decree of Al-Burham, which is the chairman of the Transitional Military Council, he created a council of transition partners for the same purpose. Now, there's the Transitional Military Council and now, because of Al Burham, there is the Council of Transition Partners. So there's two councils that are meant to serve the same purpose, but there's questions now over which one is legitimate and which one people should actually be following and listening to. The Prime Minister of Sudan, Abdallah Hamdok, and his transitional government is currently accusing Al Burham of overstepping authority and violating the constitutional declaration. Now, this is a pretty bumpy road here on the path to potentially something good, a civilian-led government, but we'll see if they manage to get there. They do have uh, about a year and uh, uh, some change left before 2022, uh, because we're in the ending stages of 2020. So they have a year and the rest of December to work this out. Hopefully they do, but interesting thing to note, because Sudan is right in between Ethiopia and Egypt, and I'd imagine the last thing Ethiopia, the Ethiopian government would want, is a destabilized Sudan that falls into a civil war over which council is legitimate, and they start fighting over the government. At the same time that Ethiopia is trying to wrestle control over the rebels in the Tigray region. Because if Sudan is destabilized and Tigray is in open rebellion, that leaves the door wide open for someone 
Egypt to waltz straight down south along the Nile and sabotage uh, Ethiopia, really. It doesn't have to be the dam, although it likely would be. That's my bet. Uh, my bets are on something happens to the dam. Okay, that that's if I was e Ethiopian, my biggest fear right now is that something's gonna happen to that dam, and you're gonna lose out on electricity, which paves the way for development. That would be my biggest fear if I was in Ethiopia, especially now that Sudan has the potential to become destabilized through its own internal politics. Um, at the worst possible time for you. Because you're dealing with rebels in Tigray. So, I didn't necessarily realize the importance of Sudan. I just thought the story was interesting. But putting it in the perspective of their region, that could be trouble. That, for Ethiopia, that could be serious trouble. A destabilized Sudan could enable the Tigray rebels to just walk across the border and, uh, who knows, find their way into the south of Ethiopia and destabilize Ethiopia more. Because uh, there was, I watched a video from the Caspian Report. He did a good video on this. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, ethnicities in Ethiopia, and it's kind of really tenuously held together the, by the central government. So I'd imagine there currently being an open rebellion, it wouldn't take too much for the other groups to be coerced into fighting the central government as well for more control over it. So, Ethiopia is in a tough spot, and this destabilization of Sudan that could potentially result from this uh, turbulence uh, isn't going to happen. So now, we're going to move on to France. France, having been made very, very, very interesting in these last couple uh, weeks, almost as interesting as the family favorite here, Russia. <sighs> So right now, there are riots in France over a proposed law that, if passed, would ban the filming of police. That would, that would be included in the law itself. It's not the law is strictly prohibiting filming police. That would be included in the law. And people are protesting over that because uh, police brutality is kind of uh, the hot issue right now. Macron, during an interview... He denied the notion that freedoms were being eroded in France, you know, amidst the lockdowns, the crackdown on Islam, and this new law being proposed that would, if passed, ban the filming of police. He's saying, no, their freedoms are not being eroded. But what caught my attention here was what he said after that. He said, it's a big lie. And then he says, we are not Hungary or Turkey. And I'm just like, wow. I'm like, wow. He just wow. Because uh, Erdogan in previous weeks had called Macron trouble. I'll get into why I was so shocked that he said this a minute in a minute. But Erdogan had called Macron trouble and he hoped the French would, quote, get rid of him as soon as possible. But what caught me is that France is almost deliberately stoking the flames of old rivalries, like really old rivalries that were previously frozen. They have, they've rekindled their rivalry with Britain over fisheries uh, that they have taken a hard stance on, and the British don't like that. 
uh, they've rekindled their old rivalry with the Turk rivalry rivalry with the Turks with the Islam crackdown. Uh, they've rekindled their rivalry with Germany over the raises for government medical workers. Not entirely sure why that caused issues between them and the Germ the Germans in the EU, but it did. Um, and now they are directly implying that Hungary impedes the freedoms of its own people. And for those who don't know, Hungary was part of the Hab... Uh, it's not necessarily a rivalry with Hungary, but the old French and Austrian rivalry, the Habsburg dynasty. So the Austro-Hungarian Empire, way back, uh, has now been brought into the 21st century. They are, however, not trying to create a new rivalry, a new rivalry, goodness, with Russia. They are, in fact, trying to be more diplomatic to Russia, especially when compared to the standard of other Western powers. But France is really just going ham right now. And who knows, maybe they're in the midst of another French Revolution. We just can't see it right now because we're in... We're in the quagmire right now, so we we don't get the bird's eye view that you do when you look back on history. Uh, maybe they're going to go on the war path and start dumping on, <laughs> dumping on the rest of Europe. Who knows? But France is going through major changes right now, and we'll see where that gets them on the other side. It's definitely going to get them a long term. Uh, a long-term standoff with Islam. They are already in it. We'll see how it ends. If it ends, I I don't imagine it will. <clears throat> so, again, we'll see where that goes. Just another interesting thing I've gathered along the week. But now we're going to move on to Turkey, now that we've brought them up. Uh, Turkey has announced fire drills in the Mediterranean Sea on Monday, which for us means today, uh, near the Greek island of Crete. Now, this comes just ahead of an EU summit on December 10th that is likely to bring up the tensions between them and Greece, Greece being an EU member and France also being an EU member that took a hard stance against Turkey. Can France take another hard stance against Turkey right now? I don't know, not without consequences at home. And Greece is in a really bad position. Uh, they are planning on lockdowns to continue beyond Christmas. And again, the lockdowns hurt the economy, putting countries in weaker relative positions to other nations. It all ties into the relative power of nations. So now what we're probably going to see is France and Greece likely try to coerce the rest of the EU into doing something about Turkey because individually they're not going to be able to do too much uh, or they may feel that they can't do too much right now uh, because, well, social unrest and lockdown. Now, the likely response if they do uh, talk about this at the EU summit and get something done about it, the likely responses are either going to be diplomatic protest or economic sanctions. It's one of the two. Uh, France is 
France and Greece, if they're going to use military, they're going to have to do it unilaterally or bilaterally with each other. And because the rest of Europe isn't going to go. They're just not. That's the reality. Even though many of them are part of NATO, they're not going to do it. Uh, especially because they're all in similarly weakened positions due to their lockdowns. Um, yeah, that'll be something to look out for. Um, again, the summit is on December 10th. We'll see if they respond. Um, Turkey is probably not going to step down. We thought that they were when they backed down the first time, but they're doing drills now, provoking Greece. They probably sense weakness. And uh, with the episode on the Caucasus, where we talked about Russia having that on lockdown, that has denied Turkey access to the north. And if Russia moves into the Ukraine, that's really going to deny them access to the north. The Ottoman Empire used to own Crimea and the entire rim of the, the Black Sea. Russia moves in, that's off limits, which means the only direction they can feasibly go is south, which includes the eastern Mediterranean. So, big things potentially happening. Uh, either they're able to stand up to Turkey or they can't. Turkey's betting that they can't. And if they can, well, Turkey will find someone else to go fight. Turkey's a bit of a wild card right now. So, be on the lookout for Turkey. Oh, that's what we'll say here. Be on the lookout for them. I'll bring up Turkey later uh, when I get into the major theme that I've noticed while gathering information for this episode. But right now, we're going to talk China. So right now, China has heightened tensions with Australia. The tensions keep going higher. The relations keep going lower. Um, and as a result of this, China has been suspending beef imports from major Australian producers. Uh, Australia is heavily economically dependent on China. And another instance where economic dependency to China uh, doesn't necessarily translate to geopolitical cooperation with China. Because Australia is very dependent on the Chinese, but you see them taking active measures to remove Chinese operatives and collaborators from positions in power and very quickly becoming an early enemy in the new Cold War. The lines are slowly but surely being drawn bit by bit. Meanwhile, China is leading in space with new with their new Chang'e probe and a 6G satellites. And the importance of that being space infrastructure because space is the ultimate high ground. Now, currently, they are ahead of their would-be competitors, but don't count out India or Japan or Australia. They could team up. India and Japan have a military pact. It's not too much of a stretch to see them uh, cooperate economically. Although they have signed that uh, trade agreement with China, Australia. Wait, no, I did Australia? sign it i don't think australia was a part of that deal but japan was i know india was cut out of the deal so but again the economics of china doesn't translate to geopolitical cooperation that's the major wall china is continually running into um so they're gonna build up their military so they can use that to coerce countries into doing what they want instead that's what i see china doing moving forward and while we're in the region, uh, it's looking like Korean unification 
you know, even if in name only, is on the horizon. South Korea's unification ministry, how's that for a name, uh, is currently set to provide services, including detailed maps of North Korea and trade data infographics. Now, for anybody who knows anything about North Korea, that is ridiculously huge. Um, they're like a black hole of information. So the fact that you're going to get any of it, any of that, especially the trade data, that's huge. That is ridiculously huge. And we could be seeing some sort of uh, Korean alliance, like self-defense, self-preservation uh United Front alliance between the two uh, as tensions around them grow hotter and hotter. Remember the Japanese are developing their own fighters and retrofitting a carrier uh, that's supposed to be self-defense, but the Japanese removed that part of their constitution, basically. We talked about that on the first episode. The Japanese can come to the defense of any quote-unquote ally of Japan but they can define that to mean whatever they want it to mean. So, and the Chinese are militarizing. So, Korea will be a interesting spot to look at as well. The whole world is getting interesting, really. But these are the interesting parts within the interesting world. Uh, and the best way I can describe this little situation here is the Berlin Wall, uh, I mean, the Korean Wall is coming down. Uh... I don't necessarily know if the DMZ is going to be, like, demilitarized. It'll probably be more like uh, more like a checkpoint system if there is to be free movement of people. Uh, it'll be more like a checkpoint system if they, if they get to that point, you know. Uh, but let's not get our too, ho too high hopes for this. Um, but it's possible. The possibility is there. And it's a beautiful possibility, really. I'd imagine there are plenty of people living in South Korea who'd like to see their relatives who are still living in the North. And it would be a very nice thing to see. It'd be a very powerful combination. It'd be kind of similar to uh, the situation in America. If they did, like, fully unify, it'd be like the reconstruction period in America. Except instead of the North rebuilding the South, it'd be the South rebuilding the North. But the South... Koreans have a massive economy, so, yeah, it's potential, potential powerhouse in the region. Now, uh, uh, yeah, that's all, that's all the notes I have for Korea right now. So, uh, in just a moment, we will get into Syria and the larger theme that I noticed gathering information for this episode and my thoughts on that. So we'll get back to you in a second. All right, we're back. And now we're going to talk Syria. Now, why are we talking Syria? Isn't Syria supposed to be a potential stepping stone to the new Ottoman Empire? Well, and the short answer is yes. But right now, for right now, Syria appears to be the crucible of 21st century warfare. And what I mean by that is that you have many nations who are involved in one way or another in the fighting here. And they are testing out new ways of fighting war. So, in America, you have the drones, obviously. 
and America is currently applying the strategic bombing tactic to drones. And the result of that is the B-21 that is currently in development, that's going to be carrier capable and able to have ridiculous range and stealth. That's what America's doing. Um, what the Turkish are doing, they are currently testing out kamikaze drone swarms. Uh, they tested it out in Azerbaijan's war against Armenia as well, uh, with stunning success, apparently. Many people are still debating over who won that conflict. No, we here know who actually won the conflict, and it, was, it wasn't Armenia, and it wasn't Azerbaijan. It wasn't Turkey either. But on the battlefield, uh, Azerbaijan did really well, where traditionally they usually got beat. They got beat and beat bad. But the tables were turned. And if it hadn't been for Russia, Armenia would have likely lost and had all of Nagorno-Karabakh taken from them. Especially with the hundreds now, uh, hundreds of Turkey, Turkey's mercenaries that they sent from Syria and Libya into the region, uh, it was recently found out that Turkey was forced to pull 900 out of the region. So uh, back when I was talking about it, we had like 70 confirmed, but wow, 900 mercenaries. And that's one of the things that Turkey has been doing, but Turkey and Arabia as well, uh, using mercenaries and militants, third parties, to fight your battles for you in other people's countries. Um, that's one thing I've noticed uh, looking at this Syrian civil war here. And the outside players who are involved. Turkey has mercenaries. Arabia spawns militant groups. Turkey's testing out uh, kamikaze drone swarms, which in Azerbaijan proved to be very effective, cheap tank killers and cheap anti-personnel weaponry. Um, so they're testing that out. Uh, and the thing about the mercenaries is that it's politically expedient. It keeps your enemies preoccupied by fighting on their own soil rather than fighting you and you don't have to send your army to do anything not really so that's that and then the russians i read this today that they were testing out a combat ai in syria which is currently slated for usage in their new t-14 armada tank uh which apparently Basically, the way the guy said it, he made it out to where you didn't have to aim really good. You just had to be in the general vicinity of where you were targeting and the AI would take over and hit the target for you. So kind of like what uh, the American tanks pioneered where despite the rough terrain, the barrel would always stay like steady even when the bottom was obviously moving and gyrating around and whatnot. So it's kind of like an advanced version of that to where instead of just that, you can shoot the target with the AI system as well. And my takeaway from that was that it's perfect for a conscript, a barely trained conscript who's fresh out of military academy and now you're going to send him off to war, uh, something that the Russians specialize in. So if they don't have to be super accurate themselves, suddenly the combat effectiveness of a conscript 
is magnified uh, by orders of magnitude. Uh, it's like it's like having a professional knight fight a conscript who has a gun. Who do you think is going to win that fight? And I think we could be seeing something similar here. Now, Russia was also testing uh, recon attack UAVs, although I'm not entirely sure if they were testing them in Syria, but the AI-assisted firing system is probably going to be implemented there as well so that the people piloting the drone don't necessarily have to be spot on with their targeting of the targeting question. Uh, just hit the general vicinity and the AI will take over. Boom. Again, the conscript, the dev the dis devastating capabilities of the conscript is, in oh my goodness, it's improved by an order of magnitude. And it, and it really made me wonder, because I was watching a couple other videos on, uh, more unrelated topics but it got me thinking um how will war be fought in the 21st century now i brought it up before and i guess i'm going to expand on it now with what we know now so basically in every other major conflict that has been fought before People fought it as though they were fighting the major conflict that happened in the past. So, people who fought in the Seven Years' War likely thought they were going to be fighting like men did in the Thirty Years' War in the 1600s. The Seven Years' War was in the 1700s. So, they were probably using outdated tactics for... An outdated war, a war that was purely on Europe, where the Seven Years' War was global. The people who fought Napoleon at first likely thought they were going to be fighting like they did in the Seven Years' War. And they were very wrong. Then there was the leadership of World War I, a hundred years later, who obviously went into war thinking they were going to be fighting Napoleon, and how painfully wrong they ended up being. Oh my goodness. Then France and Britain went into the Second World War thinking it was going to be a repeat of the first, and they were wrong too. People today imagine what World War III would look like, and when they imagine it, we think of huge armies, we think tanks, planes, carriers, uh, but with modern technology like missiles, jets, stealth and rockets, and UAVs, and of course, nuclear weapons will probably be wrong too. We, as actually, I believe we will undoubtedly be wrong too because we can't see it. There are probably a select few who can and they will, if they're in the right positions of power at the right time, they will redefine, they will redefine warfare and just run rampant over whoever their enemy happens to be. If they are not in the right positions at the right time, or not given the leeway to do so as they please, uh, the world will learn. The world will learn slowly and painfully in whatever next major conflict happens. Cause uh, I was watching, uh, what was it? That Hillsdale uh, docu series on the Second World Wars by Victor Davis Hanson, uh, and he brought up the you know the theorists and the 
architects of air power and how they thought that war is going to be fought in the air. And I made the comparison to people, the architects of cyber power, who think the war is going to be fought purely in cyberspace. Nobody lives there. People do business there. People do business with airborne commerce, but nobody lives there. So there's always going to be ground forces that actually fight it out. Towns and assets that get exchanged and taken over and bombed and destroyed. So I was watching that, obviously, a couple months ago. And it made me think about all the things people back then thought would rule the day. They thought the battleship. Uh, they thought... The tank moving slowly in organized formations with men because the tank moves faster than the men, so you slow it down. And they thought the plane was going to just be dominant force everywhere. But all of those predictions ended up being wrong. People couldn't see it. The, some people could see the potential for the newness of war, like a certain mustache man who ran rampant through Europe. And I just can't help but think that we're probably going to get this so very wrong whenever the next major war does happen. And it's going to be so different, so unlike anything we've ever seen or thought of. And it's going to be deadly. Because there's no worse combination than new technology and new ways of killing combined with outdated means of fighting a war there's no worse combination so the question that I come to today is who will redefine the meta of warfare because Genghis Khan had his mounted hordes of people with swords and archers and they perfected that to a T then there was Napoleon who had his core system where he would split his army into equal pieces so they were effectively miniature armies that could come together at a moment's notice to form a larger army. But when they were moving, they would split up into their cores and then they would move along multiple roads, advancing at different paces, uh, living off the land, which they did back then. But because they were split up, they wouldn't tear... <laughs> through the land and have nothing left. They could preserve resources that way and you could never really know what the what Napoleon was aiming for until he amassed his army on top of you. So there was that and it took a while for Europe to learn how to deal with that. And if the only way they could was to copy him. And then you had Hitler who had Blitzkrieg. Where you bombard them with planes, you use the plane as a flying artillery to hit deep. You use artillery to hit the border, and then you punch a hole through the enemy's lines with tanks, and then you just run in with a bunch of men like you were a virus spreading through the immune system faster than they can respond. And it works for relatively short distances. Uh, well, it works really far really, but it can't. It couldn't bring down the Soviets. There was just too much territory to take, too many bodies to walk over, I guess. But uh, what comes next, really? 
what comes next? Uh, who will figure it out first? And more importantly, who's going to use it first? Because you can figure it out, but if you don't have the reason to use it, you're not going to use it. I could sit here and figure out exactly how war is going to be fought, but if America sits back and does nothing, well, I'm never going to, it's never going to be implemented by America. It's going to be implemented by someone else. It's going to be implemented by someone who goes to war. And if America's pulling back and is dedicating itself to not getting involved in any more wars right now, then who's going to be the one to do it? I've been watching Turkey. We I brought up a couple weeks back that they were using lasers to shoot down enemy assets. And lasers are perfect for their environment. They're, they're in the arid Middle East, which means there's no like humidity or cloud cover to really get in the way unless you're close to the coastlines. But that's a perfect environment for that. It's a perfect environment for air power. It's a perfect environment for the means of warfare that are designed for flat and wide open regions of territory. Like a, say, a drone swarm. There's there's nothing to hide. There's nowhere to hide. The drone will find you and then blow up on you. There's nowhere to hide the plane. You can't hide behind cloud cover and the laser's going to hit you and you're going to go down. Turkey is, in all their excursions and escapades, uh, they are learning, bit by bit, how 21st century warfare is going to be fought. America and Russia, to uh, their own extents, because those two, what I see, are they're taking this new, the newness of 21st century warfare and applying it to 20th century warfare. The Americans applying it to their planes, which won them the war in the eyes of America, and the Russians to their tanks which won them the war in the eyes of the Russians. Russia had to fight a land war. America had to fight a naval war. But airplanes were very useful in defeating the Japanese. Took down their carriers, using carriers. The battleships were utterly helpless against your carriers. And then you had overwhelming air power in Europe. And air power has yet to fail the Americans right now. Well, maybe in Vietnam, but look at the kill count on that. America is heavily reliant on air power for it, what it does and where where it goes militarily. So it's applying this to air power. Russia is a land power, which means they have to dominate the land. So they are applying this to their tanks. And they're probably going to apply it to their anti-air systems as well. Uh, how they adapt their anti-air systems to a drone swarm, we'll see. They'll probably respond with lasers if I had to take a bet. Or just a counter drone swarm. Or maybe even flak, like they use in World War II. It's just a flak gun where you fire and it explodes at a certain range and hope you hit the target. But Turkey seems to be embracing the fundamental newness of it. So... The best way I can describe what America and Russia were up to was similar to how people incorporated carriers into navies back in the 20th century, but no one really embraced the carrier, not even America, until all their battleships got sunk. 
and they all they had were the carriers and the carriers became the war effort so they were forced to do it dreadnoughts were taken out of the picture because all it took was a single shot from another dreadnought and your dreadnought goes down people thought that the bigger the tank gets the more powerful it gets but then you have a rocket launcher so I see Turkey embracing the newness of this as it is trying to find its way in its region. It doesn't really have a preset orthodoxy that it has subscribed to, so it's trying to find one, and it will make one, and it will probably dominate its region when it does, and I mean that militarily, and again, perfect environment for lasers and drone swarms, kamikaze drone swarms at that. Huh. I see Turkey being a major player, especially in the mid-century. Turkey will likely join Hungary as a mid-century power. And they'll, they may even do it first. They may even rise technically in the early 21st century. But ah, who's going to figure it out first? Because... I don't think it's going to be the Europeans, at least not for now. Um, France is preoccupied. Britain's preoccupied. Britain is building uh, its second supercarrier right now. And it's in talks of building a supercarrier with India. We'll see where that goes. Uh, if they do become a new British Empire, they'll probably get dragged into conflicts everywhere and they'll be forced to constantly adapt and evolve like the old British Empire did so we'll see where that takes them but it seems that many countries are not adapting and evolving to the newness of warfare America and Russia to limited extent are still guilty of that but I believe it will be the countries that Embrace, again, embrace the newness of what we have today. And there'll probably be multiple ways of doing it, but one will probably come out on top as the definitive way of fighting war in the 21st century. And it's looking like Turkey's going to be the one to figure it out because everyone else is doubling down on a single thing. Uh, drones from the sky, like America, drones from the ground, like Russia, drones from the sky, like China. Uh, people are either doubling down on big, expensive drones from the sky, or a big, expensive tank drone, <laughs> in Russia's case. But Turkey's going small. They're going uh, for quantity. And, well, a torpedo can sink a dreadnought. The U-boat can sink the finest ships in the Royal Navy. Uh, I think I think we're going to be in for something really disruptive, whenever, whenever this new meta is figured out, whenever the new way in which wars that we fight are going to be figured out, and it'll again it'll probably be a combination of everything: uh, information warfare, cyber warfare. Uh, but it's seeming increasingly like asymmetric warfare is currently on the 
at the top of the pecking order right now because you can't really beat asymmetric warfare at least not for now but um i think it'll be very interesting well interesting after whatever major conflict happens to see what countries take away from that war uh the ones that are involved and the ones that are not nobody wants to see a third world war nobody wants to have a third world war but it's likely that we're gonna get one or it's some sort of major conflict which is just a conflict fought between the major powers so it could be europe okay we're it could be it's looking like it if it's going to be europe it's going to be in the east with russia taking back what it views as its rightful clay but it could be other places around the world it again the cold war in the east could go hot and that would be horrifying so i don't count out anybody as far as i know some tomfoolery could happen in south america and there's a, and there's a major conflict happening in the jungles of the Amazon. I don't bet on that, but it could happen. We don't know, because nobody thought that, say, Spain would rule the 1500s. Not even in the late 1400s. Um, nobody, nobody can predict the future to a T. And I, I'll, I'll get into that as I close out today. So I'll, I'll be right back. All right, we're back. I'm going to make some closing statements before we go. And I was uh, talking about Spain in the late 1400s. Now, if you had asked anybody in that time who was going to rule the next century, the 1400s are coming to a close, going into the 1500s, who's going to rule the future? Nobody in their right mind would have told you Spain. Nobody in their right mind would have even bothered to bring up Portugal. They would have made a list, if you had asked them. And after subconsciously writing off the entire Iberian Peninsula, they would have said, the Ottomans are at the gates of Vienna. If they get through, the Muslims win, Christianity falls, it's obviously going to be the Ottomans. They are... A ma massive power. At this point, they could probably even beat China or India. It's going to be the Ottomans. They're going to rule the 1500s. Those people would have taken all the information of their day. And they would have made the best assumption and prediction that they could. That the Ottoman Empire was going to rule. History says otherwise. And it seems obvious to us who was going to rule the 1500s, because Spain did. They expanded into empire. They sailed across the ocean, and which at the time was just viewed as a theoretical. No one knew that you could sail across the ocean, like around the globe. It was still theoretical that the globe was even round to begin with. But they did it. And they did what was viewed as impossible and achieved heights previously never thought possible for a country that wasn't China or India or the Ottoman Empire. Nobody thought it possible, but they did it. Nobody in their right mind would have told you in 1490 or even 1500 
that the Spanish would single-handedly send the Ottoman Navy to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. Nobody would have told you that. And even if they did, nobody would have expected Portugal, tiny Portugal, to put the final nail in the Ottoman coffin. They would have said, okay, the Navy is down. The Ottomans are going to, they're going to rebuild. They're going to rebuild better. And they're going to come back for revenge. But they couldn't do that. Nobody expected that tiny Portugal would, instead of sailing across the Atlantic to build their own colonial empire, they sailed the long way around Africa and interfaced with the spice producers directly. Nobody predicted that was going to happen, and therefore nobody could have told you that Portugal would single-handedly uproot and upend the entire spice trade, the entire spice trade, all of it. Because now the Portuguese could sell you the spices instead of the Ottomans. The Ottoman Empire went into terminal decline because their economy, they didn't have the spice trade monopoly anymore. They didn't have the Silk Road monopoly anymore. The Portuguese took bigger and bigger market share. It was the beginning of the end for the Ottomans. It was the beginning of the end for the Italian middlemen of Venice and Genoa. Italy would end up being a puppet, a collection of puppet states from outside powers until the 1800s. Nobody would have predicted that Iberia would have changed the game so fundamentally and so fast Nobody, nobody in their right mind would have told you because they, they couldn't see it. You can't predict the unpredictable. So when we look out today and we think that what we see is just going to be what we see and that what we can predict is going to be exactly what happens, even with the best of information that we have, even with the best uh, accounting for all the variables, there will always be a variable that we just can't account for, and that is the unknowable. You don't know what you don't know. You don't know what technology, what breakthrough, what new application of an old technology is going to be around the corner that some some bum in the in the middle of some impoverished nation whose name that you probably don't even know is going to apply differently and change the game nobody you, you just can't predict that type of thing and as we're heading into this new industrial revolution with uh high tech being at the center of it all we really don't know what's gonna happen i can tell you that a lot of the faces in the tech market that we think of as omnipresent are going to be gone by the end of the century. Some of them will live. Not all of them. And the same thing will happen with countries. Some of the countries that we think of as it's a given that they're going to rule the future, they're going to... They have the opportunity to end up as a backwater. And the backwaters have the opportunity to end up as first world nations and redefine what the term first world nation means. Those that embrace the fundamental newness 
of something new and take it as far as they can. Technology will always find the best place for it, but the people that get the technology first are obviously going to have the advantage. The people that use a technology first are always going to have the advantage, even if that advantage is short-lived. So, I guess the thing on my mind after all this that we've covered today is, who are we not looking at? Who are we not, who, who's out there that isn't even on our radar? That's going to do something wild. That's going to change the course of history. That's going to make all of our predictions wrong. Some tiny nation in the middle of nowhere, or maybe a big nation whose names we all know, but could never have predicted what they were going to do anyway. Who's going to redefine warfare? Who's going to redefine, well, not redefine, but who's going to define the 21st century? I don't know. But if there's one thing I do know, it's that the world is changing. The world is changing. It's changing fast. We're watching it together. And I will do my best to be on the lookout for that guy, that nation, who's gonna change the game. I'll probably get it wrong too, but we'll still have fun watching it together. We'll have fun watching me be wrong. But uh, yeah, that's uh, about it. That's all we have for today. Now I have been your host, Hi Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast and my geopolitical podcast. I mixed up the ending a little bit for you. Definitely not because I read the wrong part before the other one. No, no, no. We, we, we're professional here. But uh, have a good day. Servus.